0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians six fourteen through seventeen. This is the word of God. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, come to your word once again. We're so grateful to do so. And uh, we just think about our dependence on you our dependence on your word. And as we think about how to appropriate this armor in Christian warfare, may you guide us in that. Uh, May you elucidate these words in our minds and apply them to our lives and transform us for the glory of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Watchman Ni, the great Chinese church leader, famously summarized Ephesians with three words, sit, walk, and stand. These three actions not only summarize this letter, but also describe the process of growth in the Christian life. The first part of Ephesians was focused on where we sit as a Christian. Chapter two, verse six, we've been raised up and are now seated with him in the heavenly places. Positionally, we've been transferred to another kingdom a new family, a new life, a new destiny in Christ. This is where we are seated as believers. And everything else stems from that foundation. Where we are seated is the basis for how we walk, which is the second verb. Chapter 2, verse 10. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Verse 8, Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 15, Be careful how you walk. Throughout the Scripture, we see that your walk is a metaphor for how you live. And how you live naturally flows from what has already happened to you in Christ. So, how you walk in the Christian life flows from where you are seated with Him. We're empowered for the walk because of where we sit. Nee says this. What is the secret strength of the Christian life? From where is its power? Let me give you the answer in a sentence. The Christian secret is His rest in Christ. His power derives from His God-given position. All who sit can walk. For in the thought of God, the one follows the other spontaneously. We sit forever with Christ that we may walk continuously before man. So where we are seated allows us to walk, but also allows us to stand, which is the last part of Ephesians. As we saw last week, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, having done all to stand firm. And our passage today, again, starts with this word in verse 14, stand therefore. John Stott says this, this four-time emphasis on stand and withstand shows the apostles' concern for Christian stability. Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. As we saw last week, the goal of the struggle, this warfare, is to stand, to not give up ground to the enemy. And our strength to stand comes from the Lord. So we must be firmly rooted in Him. So we come now to the armor of God. It's interesting to remember that as Paul dictated this letter... He was chained by the wrist to a Roman soldier with armor. Paul now expounds on this standing firm with illustrations of armor, a different kind of soldier and a different kind of warfare. It's important to note that these instructions on warfare should not be read in isolation, but interpreted by what Paul has already said earlier in the letter. For example, putting on the armor is another way of saying, put on the new self, chapter 4. Or another way of saying, be filled with all the fullness of God, chapter 3. So in this case, with the armor, each piece of armor unpacks some aspect of our new identity in Christ and how we may continually be filled with his fullness, continually putting on Christ, putting off the old self. So let's consider... Each of these in your bulletin. Number one, verse 14 stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. In Roman times, a leather apron hung under your armor to keep your inside clothing close to your body. You would fasten this clothing around your waist in preparation for battle. You don't want to be distracted or inhibited by your clothing during the fighting as Ian Duke, it says, it's hard to fight when your pants keep falling down. <laughs> well, the Bible speaks of girding up then and preparing for battle. This is where the belt comes in. So in Christian warfare, how do we gird up and prepare for the battle? Well, our belt is the truth. So how does that work? How does truth gird us up? Well, first of all, we need to know the truth. Years ago, Oprah Winfrey popularized the notion of your truth, which is not a helpful phrase because it carries with it the idea that truth is somehow subjective or it belongs to you and it might differ from my truth. And there are all kinds of different truths that may be contradictory. That understanding, if you'll pardon the word, is not true. Something is true regardless of your opinion or your experience. Now, we all might have different perspectives or experiences, but truth is objective. And this connects to the sword of the Spirit later. But ultimately, truth concerning salvation and truth concerning our relationship with God is found in the Word of God. Truth concerning the life of the Christian is found in the Bible. Now that truth may apply to us in different ways depending on the context. And there may be ways to expound on that truth or further nuance that truth, but we don't try to discover our truth. We discover the truth and apply that truth to our own lives. This is why we so desperately need to be people of the Word. That's where the truth comes from. Think about Jesus wore the belt of truth during his testing in the wilderness. Every lie he was faced with from the devil, he answered with truth from the scripture. He had girded himself with it. He knew it. He had internalized it. And he used it to answer falsehood. He had biblical truth at the ready. So we need to know it. Boyce imagines a situation where a Christian dies and goes to heaven, and there he meets some of the authors of the biblical books. Ezekiel, for example. And next to him stands Malachi and Amos and Habakkuk. They manage to strike up a conversation, and the Christian is glad to meet these men God used to write the Bible. Ah, Ezekiel, what a pleasure to to meet you, he says. I'm pleased that you're glad to meet me, Ezekiel replies. Tell me, what did you think of my book? And the Christian has to answer, I'm afraid I didn't really read it. Malachi is there, so he chimes in. Well, my book's a lot shorter than Ezekiel's. Certainly, you read it, so what did you think of what I said? Again, the Christian has to admit he's not read it. Malachi, is that in the Old Testament? A belt does no good hanging in your closet. You need to put it on and fasten it to prepare us for the battle. It means we need to read it listen to it, listen to it preached, study it alone, study it in groups, to learn and understand the truth, to have it at the ready, in some cases even memorize it, to gird us as we prepare for lies from the enemy. Remember, everything the enemy does is based on lies. The only power he has is what unbelief allows him. So, Marinating in the truth is essential. That's why when we study the word in the morning, for instance, we shouldn't ask, How do I feel? But we should ask, Am I now equipped to live to, with the truth to live my day, to think and act according to the truth and not be so deceived? Satan hates the truth, he's the father of lies. Remember, the very beginning in the garden of Eden, the serpent to Eve. Did God really say, you will not surely die? This truth is good, not bad. Is it any wonder then, it's a struggle for us to find time in the word. A struggle to learn and remember the truth. Big surprise, think about it. You're setting aside time for truth, to gird yourself. Satan will do anything to keep you from that truth. It's amazing the excuses or distractions that might surface when it's time for our Bible intake or study or even coming to church. He hates the truth. Now, with Jesus, Satan was really laboring to pull out all the stops. But with us, it's pretty easy. Just show us something else that's appealing and we'll go after that. And if he can keep you from marinating in the truth that day with entertainment, diversions, social media, distractions, excuses, whatever, he's one step closer to more easily deceiving you in any number of areas in your life with any number of deceptions. And Duca tells the story of a preacher in Scotland who tried to serve his congregation by teaching some of the illiterate members of the congregation how to read. He was, uh, there was an older Scotsman to whom he had given a number of reading lessons, helping him through the easy portions of the Bible. Well, circumstances led the, the preacher away, but a few months later he came back and went and visited the home of this man. He wasn't there, but his wife was. The preacher asked uh, how he was doing in his reading. Is he getting through the Bible, he asked. Oh, no, she said. He got out of the Bible and into the newspaper a long time ago. That's what happens to many Christians. They've gotten out of the Bible and into blog posts, social media feeds, sporting news, political commentary. If we know more about the players of our favorite sports team than the Gospels, or more about characters and plots of our favorite TV show than the Prophets, more about statistics related to some political debate than the letters of Paul. We need to reevaluate our learning priorities. We talk a lot about intake, the pastors do, at the beginning of each year and throughout our pastoral spotlights, like the one today. We're free to learn anything we can, but our main intake needs to be the Bible. Let's prioritize mastering the truth because it girds us up like a belt and prepares us for the battle. Number two, continuing in verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. A soldier's vital organs were protected by the breastplate. If someone wants to go after your heart for the kill, the breastplate protects you. So, one thing essential and vital to your Christian life is righteousness. And we need to understand that word in its fullness. Righteousness can refer to our right standing with God and also our right living before God. And the order is crucially important. There are two general errors regarding righteousness that constantly endanger believers. And they're equal and opposite errors. One error is the constant temptation to exchange our righteousness for that of Christ. If we think we have right standing with God based on our own good works and obedience, if we think that that is why we're accepted by God, then we're not even a Christian because that's not the truth of the gospel. If that sounds different or new to you, let me just speak directly to you for a minute because this is the most important thing I'll say today. Only Christ's righteousness, His obedience... His good standing is sufficient for any of us to be in good standing with God. And we receive his righteousness by repentance and faith. And I would love to talk to you about that later. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on the cross, punishment, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God That's the believer's great exchange on the cross. Our sin or unrighteousness is laid on Christ to be punished and dealt with justly. And he gives us his good standing with God, his righteousness in return. But even Christians can forget this and start to think we're in good standing with God because of our own righteousness. And then we either get arrogant and self exalting or we get depressed and self-defeated because we are mistakenly looking at our own righteousness for our good standing with God. So centering back on Christ and finding your righteousness in him, that's donning the breastplate which protects us in battle. But don't focus on putting on the armor. Focus on the righteousness of Christ. One commentator says it this way, it's not our own weak righteousness that guards us. Not even our ability to strap on God's breastplate well, but a righteousness given us in Jesus Christ. Critical. But there's another opposite error we can believe regarding righteousness, and Satan would love us to believe it. And that is the error of thinking that how we live doesn't matter. Just one chapter earlier, same letter, Paul makes it very clear that anyone who is sexually immoral, for instance, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. If you're living an immoral lifestyle with no repentance, you do not have the righteousness of Christ and are not saved. It matters greatly how we live. Now that you're united with Christ by faith, you're fundamentally changed. Now that you're joined intimately with him in his death and resurrection, you share in his victory, in his life, in his righteousness. You will thirst to obey the Lord. You will put on the new self. You will desire to please your master. If instead you have an attitude that says, Christ is my righteousness, so my sin doesn't matter then you have no assurance that you have his righteousness. Because if you're truly born again, you have the Holy Spirit and you've been changed. You cannot help but be changed. Changed to a person that's not perfect, but desires perfection. Desires the very holiness of God himself. So, if you ignore that truth about righteousness and and instead engage in sin, that's a faulty breastplate. Another fatal error that plays right into the enemy's hand. Number three. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's funny, some of the news events that you remember from history as a kid, uh, some of them are understandable because of how shocking they were. I vividly remember being in grade school PE class when Mrs. Burke told us that President Reagan had been shot. I I remember exactly where I was seated in Mrs. Fotzak's English class when Mr. Brennelson's voice came on the intercom, announcing the space shuttle Challenger had exploded. Another piece of news that struck me in a shocking way, I don't remember where I was when I heard the news, probably because it wasn't tragic so much as really, really weird. This was the news from the Philippines when it was discovered that the first lady Imelda Marcos had over 3,000 pairs of shoes. Some of you remember that, I know that. (laughs) To my adolescent mind, it was truly stranger than fiction. I couldn't even visualize what it would be like to have 3,000 of anything, let alone pairs of shoes. But footwear, is important for any occasion, especially on the battlefield, the one place where probably none of Imelda's shoes would have been helpful. In Christian warfare, the shoes we wear are readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, how does this footwear, gospel of peace readiness, help us in battle? Well, let's break this down a little. First of all, peace comes through the gospel, doesn't it? Peace with God, Romans 5. A right standing with Him because of Christ. This connects to the, the breastplate of righteousness. That gives us peace with God, reconciliation, but also in that peace gives us a subjective peace, Philippians 4. A peace that passes understanding. Think of the peace that was demonstrated by Jesus in His life on earth. He lived at God's pace, never lazy or idle but never frantically driven either. He's he's ready and calmly communicating the good news about himself to each person that's brought across his path. Jesus is never like, hey, make this quick. I got a lot of people to talk to. I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on here. No, he's all in with each conversation. He's all about that person, ready to proclaim the good news to that person. Always ready for each conversation. So we need to be ready. We don't go into the battle barefoot. Get your shoes on. Get ready. When you watch, uh, if you watch baseball, you think I think about an infielder. Most people, when they're watching baseball, they're usually just watching the pitcher and the catcher. But I'm sorry, the pitcher and the batter. But if you're if you watch the other players, uh, the infielders, for instance, as the pitch is thrown, they're just on their tiptoes, just. Ready to just anticipate the action wherever the ball goes. They wear shoes of readiness, we might say. You need to be ready with the gospel, both for ourselves and for others. Isaiah 52:7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's a readiness on our feet with the gospel of peace. Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those outside the faith, making the best use of time. Let your speech be gracious. Think of Jesus. Gracious speech seasoned with salt so that you you may know how to answer each person. He's saying be ready. Anticipate questions from outsiders. Those outside the faith will ask questions. Get ready to answer with graciousness, saltiness, gospel truth about how they can have this peace through Jesus. Now, it might seem contradictory that we're announcing good news while we battle, but we know how the war ends, don't we? We know how it ends in the future because of Christ's victory in the past. And there's nothing Satan hates more than this gospel of peace because it pulls people out of his kingdom of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of Christ the beloved Son of God. And I would just add, as we're we're ready and engaging in these gospel conversations from last week's passage, don't forget who the enemy is. Don't get upset with them. Don't get angry. Our struggle's not against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. They're victims of a dark regime, and we want to rescue them. And that rescue comes only through a winsome, compassionate, patient proclamation of the gospel. So get your shoes on and be ready. Number four, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield in view here is not the small one that would be held during a a sword fight, but instead the large shield you see in these epic films like Gladiator where Hundreds of flaming arrows are volleyed over at the same time and come raining down on an army of soldiers. And they're all taking refuge under these tall shields. And the, the, air, the flaming arrows come raining down and stick into the, into the shields. And they would often put calf skin over the surface of the shield so that the flame would be extinguished and not burn up the shield. So that's the, the imagery here. Satan is constantly shooting flaming arrows at us, lies, accusations of all kinds. And those arrows are extinguished by our faith. Now what does that mean? In the Old Testament, God himself is our shield. Genesis 15, God addresses Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. We see this prominently throughout the Psalms as well. For example, Psalm 18. The Lord is a shield for all who take refuge in him. So, if the Lord is our shield, how is faith our shield? Well, remember, faith is only as good as its object, the object in which you place it. Faith, in this way, is like trust. It doesn't make sense to say, I have faith, just like it doesn't make sense to say, I trust. You trust what? You trust whom? To be saved by faith alone means we're saved by Christ alone. So, faith as a shield means our Lord is our shield. And Duke, it illustrates this with the following image at sea. Imagine you're falling into, you've fallen into sea and are drowning. You can't swim and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. But then a rope lands by you. If you grab hold of the rope, you could be pulled to safety. But in order to be saved, several things are necessary. First, you need to believe in the existence of the rope. If there's no rope, there's nothing to grab. Second, you need to believe there's someone at the other end of the rope. I mean, if there's there's no one on the other end, there would equally be no point in grabbing it. But it's not enough to believe in the existence of the rope and of someone on the other end of the rope. You also need to be convinced of a third thing, that the person on the other end of the rope wants to help you. If it were wartime and that person on the other end was an enemy, there might still be no point in grabbing the rope, because the person on the other end might just pull you up and shoot you anyway. But if the person on the other end were your best friend, you could confidently grab the rope. Yet you could still believe all these things and still drown if you didn't actually grab the rope. If all your beliefs don't lead you to the necessary action, they won't do you any good. This picture helps us understand what Christians mean when they talk about faith. Faith is not simply saying, I believe in God in some generic way. This is the faith in the specific good God, sovereign God, who loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Okay. For faith to be your shield from these flaming darts of the enemy, you need to believe that God is sovereign and that he's good. We need to believe that our God not only directs the, the affairs of men and nations, but Ordains the car crash, the job layoff, the health challenges, the relational difficulties. Duke explains this is where our functional unbelief is so often a problem. We may confess in theory, yeah, God's in control. But it's hard holding on to that truth when Things are going south all around us, fast and furious. In this broken world when the powers of evil all around seem very strong and our world seems totally out of control, to experience faith as a shield, we need to know not only that God is powerful and sovereign, but that this God is our friend. God's sovereignty is not comforting at all. Unless you know that this sovereign God is on your side. That's why it's normal to struggle in the midst of intense pain and ongoing suffering. The, the devil's fiery darts aim to convince you God's not on your side. But he is. Read the Psalms. These great saints struggled with these same things. How long, oh Lord? Gain courage from them. Gain courage from each other. This is what the church is for, brothers and sisters, to encourage one another. We don't wear this armor alone as a solitary soldier. We do not fight alone. We battle alongside each other. We battle alongside our home group. We battle alongside those in our Bible study. Our faith is strengthened by one another. That's God's, one of his main purposes of the church. I cannot tell you how many times hearing from another brother or sister, what the Lord is doing or has done in their life, how that encourages me, right? And strengthens my faith. Or praying for one another. Having people pray for me and the Lord shows himself good and faithful time and again. This strengthens our faith and shields us from all the wicked arrows, the evil one volleys our way. Number five. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Helmets provided the soldier with protection against blows to the head. Our salvation is the great protector against the enemy's blows to the head. He will try to knock away at your assurance so that you're disoriented. Growing up, I remember a common question used in evangelism. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you why I should let you into my heaven, what would you say? This is a great diagnostic question because it gets to the heart of what people believe about salvation. If people answer anything other than what Christ has accomplished on their behalf, like, well, I've tried my best or I'm better than most, they haven't believed the gospel and therefore can have no assurance at all. I remember Jack Welsh, the famous CEO of General Electric back in the 90s. I remember studying so many things he'd said and written in in my master's program. This great business leadership expert was being interviewed on 60 Minutes by Dan Rather. I mean, so many questions he's gotten in his career about things. Here was a fascinating exchange. Rather, what's the toughest question Welch has ever been asked? Welch do you think you'll go to heaven? Rather. His answer? Welsh. It's a long answer, but I said that if caring about people, if giving it your all, if being a great friend counts, despite the fact that I've been divorced a couple of times and no one's proud of that, I haven't done everything right all the time, I think I got a shot. That kind of response is is very common. I think I got a shot. I hope so. Listen, the Bible says we can know for sure. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now some say that's arrogant. I remember my uncle who I love very much who wasn't a believer. I remember having really good discussions with him in my youth about Christianity. He'd say things like this, you know, Christians seem smug to me. I mean, how can you have that kind of certainty? Well, here's how. It has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with Jesus. (laughs) Indeed, it would be incredibly smug to rest our hope of heaven on our own goodness. If I claim to have certainty of going to heaven based on something in me that's better than others, that would be beyond smug and, in fact, incredibly arrogant. But if our salvation is a free gift that comes to us by repentance and faith in Christ. There's nothing arrogant in claiming such knowledge. We're simply taking God at his word. He's much more trustworthy than me, and this is what he says. And our certainty comes from believing him. Satan will tempt us to despair, won't he? Discouragement. Doubt. These are blows to the head. The lack of assurance comes from taking our focus off of Christ and putting it on ourselves. It comes from not believing his word. It comes from losing sight of the victory and eternity. And one commentator offered the following illustration. Suppose tomorrow you receive two letters in the mail. In one, you receive the news that your great aunt in Australia had died and left you $10 million. On the same day, same post, You also received a parking ticket that was going to cost you $50. Which of the two letters is going to shape your day? The sure and certain hope of $10 million or the present depressing reality of the $50 fine? James tells us that God is up to something good in our life. When we encounter trials like parking tickets or things much more serious, of various kinds. I know it's hard to believe that it's good, but we need to believe His Word. That trial, there's something happening to your faith, He says. It's getting stronger, more steadfast, so that you're on the road to perfection, completeness, lacking nothing. Your salvation means you are in Christ, secured, assured. His path, consider this, His path to glory came through suffering. And yes, so does yours. So does mine. Don't doubt that. The enemy will try to rattle you through the helmet, but he will not prevail. Your certain salvation gives you power for deliverance from his attacks. Arnold says this, putting on salvation means you realize and appropriate one's new identity in Christ, which gives believers power for deliverance from supernatural enemies on the basis of their union with the resurrected and exalted Lord. He has sealed your salvation with his victory on the cross. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. Note that because of the past victory of Christ and our present union with him, we can have assurance of future Salvation, But the emphasis and command for putting on the helmet is for today. We see this with all the armor so far. To put on the armor is to resist the lies of Satan with our gospel convictions about the truth, about the person, the life, the death, the resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ. Richard Coken recounts the amazing story of the massacre in Kenya in 2015. 147 Christians, mainly young students, were killed by Islamic extremists. And the Christian leader said this afterward. This is phenomenal. Listen, 147, mostly young people, massacred. This is what he says. We will never surrender our nation or our faith in Christ to those who glory in death and destruction. We will not be intimidated Because we know and trust in the power of the cross. Your helmet of salvation or spiritual protection means this. Do not let the enemy get to you. Because he was defeated by the power of the cross. Remember last week's scoreboard? Okay, we can be up by 100 and still take an elbow to the face. Okay? We'll play out the rest of the game, but it's over. Jesus has won. Number six, verse 17, continuing, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Warfare tactics and weapons have obviously changed over the years. I remember visiting the Buffalo Bill Museum in Cody, Wyoming. This was more than 20 years ago now, but at least at that time, they had an entire floor of the museum dedicated to all kinds of weapons used in various wars over the years. It's sort of like a, A history of weaponry. Long before drones and missiles throughout nearly all of human history, there's been some level of hand-to-hand combat. You see with with the bayonets at the end of the rifles one to two hundred years ago? One to two thousand years ago, hand-to-hand combat was with a sword. And it was both an offensive and defensive weapon. Think again of Jesus battling Satan in the wilderness. Just before this period of testing. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Okay, note that. God says, this is God's word from heaven. This is my son. Three verses later, Satan begins his engagement with Jesus. If you are the son of God. R.C. Sproul says it's, the emphasis here is on the if immediately Satan tries to cast doubt on the words of God. Suspicion about the word of God is foundational to Satan's strategy. So what does Jesus do? Well, you know the story. Every deceptive thing Satan says, each designed to get Jesus off track from his mission, Jesus answers every one of them with the scripture. Truth From God's word. Every attack is met with another deflection and stab of the sword. He stood firm using the sword of the Spirit until Satan finally flees. Stand firm. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4. The sword of the Spirit is essential to our standing and resisting the enemy. You know, many times when we're tempted, we might try to battle temptation with these kinds of thoughts. Well, I don't want to do that. Someone might find out. Or I don't want to get caught. Or what if people see? Those are all human reasons for resisting, and they will ultimately fail. As one commentator said, that's like battling temptation with pillows instead of the sword. Remember, Satan has thousands of years of practice, but he can't handle the truth. (laughs) The only way to stand firm is to respond to temptation and every deceptive strategy of the evil one with the truth of Scripture, just like our Savior did with the devil. Scottish theologian John Edie says this, the captain of our salvation set the example. And once and again and a third time did he repel the assault of the prince of darkness by three brief and simple citations from Scripture. Arnold says this, we must employ relevant application of Scripture to every situation of testing or temptation, much as Jesus did in the desert. In order to do that, we need to know it. This means we need to read it, study it, internalize it in your heart to have this truth at the ready. Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin Against you, His word is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4. That's why we're Orchard Bible Church. That's not just a random word in the middle, okay, for marketing purposes. The Bible is at the center as a visible reminder that Scripture is central to who we are and what we do. We're also privileged to support a missionary and I hope you pray for her because Satan hates this work. She specializes in Bible translation work so that others who do not currently have the scripture in their own language might hear it and know it and experience its life-giving power that they might too have the sword of the spirit themselves. Before I close, I want to play for you a short one-minute video of a Bible school in China where students receive their very own Bibles. The video quality is not that great, but I think you'll get the picture. And as you watch, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I really understand the treasure that I have in this book? Go ahead, Louie. 感谢主 太好了, 太好了。太好了。感谢神了。但是, 感谢神了。但是, Brothers and sisters, we have the Word of God. What a treasure! Of all the weapons of our warfare, the sword of the Spirit is the most tangible. Don't keep this sword in the scabbard. It does you no good there. Don't keep your Bible on the shelf or in the drawer. Take it out early and often in your day and experience its truth and its power that we might stand firm together against our enemy and all his schemes. For the glory of Christ. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the word of God. We're so grateful for these weapons of our warfare. We forget so easily how dependent we are on you. We forget so easily how we're completely dependent on the righteousness of Christ. We rest in you by faith. We long for your word. Keep it close to us, Father. Keep it in our heart that we might together stand firm against the enemy and his schemes. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.